0: Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. What a wonderful line in that hymn that reminds us Christ has done in redeeming us through his blood. Thank you, Noah and Brandon and Roberta and James for leading us this morning in song. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. As I wait for my computer to come up, it finally did, so. Well, good morning. I'm thankful you have joined us here this morning. Um, let me, I want to, I need to show you a video. So it's going to be a little bit different this morning to start out anyway. Let me go here, and we come here, and here.
1: I want to take just a moment to uh, speak personally to uh, many of you who are pastors across this country and uh, in Canada or around the rest of the world. Um, it's about an email that we sent out a couple of weeks ago, and kind of resending it with this uh, added video message. Uh, That email indicated that in Canada a bill was passed uh, Bill C4, which essentially made it a felony crime to try to convert someone from homosexuality uh, from any kind of homosexual lifestyle or any kind of transgender lifestyle with up to five years sentence in jail this is where the The homosexual community has gone to this level of extreme well that law goes into effect on January 8th and some of my friends who are pastors in Canada said they want to take a stand all across Canada that law goes into effect on the eighth so the following Sunday which should be the 16th of January just a couple of weeks from now many pastors in Canada are going to stand up in their pulpits and preach biblical sexual morality This is critical, obviously, because people need to be converted from that sin. They need to come to Christ for not only deliverance from sexual deviation, but from sin and death and judgment and hell. So they want to take a bold stand as pastors against the law that the government has passed. And uh, James Coates and some other pastors asked if I would stand with them, and I said, absolutely. So on the 16th, I'm going to be preaching on what the Bible says about homosexuality and what the Bible says about biblical morality. And I'm calling on pastors all across this country and anywhere else in the world to take the 16th of January and focus on this issue of biblical sexual morality and define what the Bible says about God's design for a man and a woman and their sexual identity and the relationship that marriage has been designed by God to fulfill. And we know it's exclusive. God doesn't allow for anything other than one man, one woman, in marriage, coming together in a sexual relationship. So I think we have to throw down the gauntlet. I think we have to take a stand. And January 16th is going to be the day that we'll we'll see how much we can accomplish if we all get together on that same Sunday. Hope you'll join us.
0: I don't want John MacArthur looking over my shoulder while we
1: That's
0: uh that's a that's a, a no go. Yeah, I, can you can we just turn that screen off or just turn just yeah, get it best that's fine. Okay. Well, you as you have just seen, we are joining with scores of other churches across the United States and Canada in taking a biblical stand on sexual morality. Uh, I would would argue that any church that takes obedience seriously will have already taken this critical stand. Just last November, I I actually preached this sermon, or at least the core of this sermon, as part of the Worthy Walk series that we've been preaching or or going through, through from Ephesians, especially Ephesians 4 and 5. If you've been in the ministry of this church for some time, you can't help but notice the drumbeat of biblical truth as we have made a biblical stand on many hot-button issues of our time. Truly, to the extent that a church is committed to biblical truth, that church will stand in opposition to the culture. Having said this, I don't believe, I will say this clearly, I don't believe that we need to seek a political answer to the Ill, ills of our society. I would argue that ultimately legislation and positive judgments in the judicial branch will only forestall the inevitable. Anytime we address political issues from the pulpit, the question comes up are we advocating a theocracy? And I would say the answer is a resounding no. Uh, the government needs to understand. That it is accountable to God. I just let that ring. The government needs to understand that it is accountable to God. Your, Your elected officials are accountable to God. God has given them the duty to bring punishment on wrongdoers and protect the church's God given mandate to protect or to preach the gospel. On the other hand, a theocracy is a government that is involved even in establishing right worship. You see the difference. Uh, There is a lethal concoction of the priesthood and politicians such that even worship becomes a matter of government control and government interest. We do not want that. In the words of one cultural commentator, our hope is that our government demonstrates the power and the acknowledgement of and a respect of common grace. Al Mohler states, we're not asking for for a government that seeks or presumes to operate on the basis of special grace. Supernatural grace. The the job of the church is the gospel. The job of the government is the maintenance of order. The maintenance of order is rested upon calm and grace, natural revelation, even as natural revelation, natural rights are cited, invoked in the Declaration of Independence and in our founding philosophy as a nation. A government's respect for an acknowledgement of common grace is not to transform government into a theocracy. End quote. I should put it this way. We know that God has ordered His creation in such a way that when humans adhere to His created order, they flourish. When they do not, they flounder and fail. That is a given. Every empire has risen and fallen based on this truth. Therefore, it is the job of the church to preach the gospel and to stand for that which is good and right according to God's plan. But we must again acknowledge that when we take a biblical stand, it means that we are standing against the culture. Because they won't let us alone, right? If we take a biblical stand, they will not leave us, leave us be. And sadly, we are standing against many who call themselves Christians. Many times, it means that we are even at odds with our families and those who call, we call friends. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul warns Timothy, Indeed, who all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then he goes on to say, But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So in saying this, Paul, I believe Paul is primarily speaking about evil men in the church. You see, they, they're going to come up and they're going to speak perverse things, and they're going to call... They're going to call bad good and good bad, right? But here's the truth. I believe that as the church goes, so goes the culture around the church. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus called his disciples the salt of the earth and warned that if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Ultimately, that salt is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. Jesus' point in that verse was to challenge His disciples to recognize the preserving nature of the ministry. But if we become tasteless, in other words, if we stand for nothing, we become utterly useless. Church, beloved, this is happening in many churches in our culture. Many are finding ways to cleverly embrace the rapid cultural change regarding the acceptance of worldly Agenda, such as LGBTQ. The pattern is clear. They start by normalizing same-sex attraction, but generally end up with fully and openly accepting homosexual sin. Most of the time, they offer love as the reason for accepting this sin. That's how twisted it is. It's twisted. The argument goes like this. Gay people are born gay, therefore it is unloving not to affirm the way they are made. You've heard the argument. And now we can add transsexuality to the list of sins that we are called to affirm. But there's nothing loving about that. Be assured, these questions will affect every denomination in every church and every individual Christian. There are no exceptions. Back in May of 2021, Al Mohler addressed the issue of gay marriage in the Catholic Church. Liberals within the church, within the Catholic Church, especially in Germany, are pushing back against historical Catholic doctrine regarding the sanctity of marriage. Prior to that, prior to May 2021, Pope Francis had been offering hints and suggestions that he wanted the church to move in a more liberal direction. Here's the problem for the Pope. The Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church states that all same-sex sexual attraction, relationships, and behavior is intrinsically disordered. That's what the Roman Catholic Church says in their documents. In other words, according to official Catholic doctrine, it is a gross deviation from God's created order. Therefore, the Pope's hand was forced. When asked, is there room or or a way for same-sex unions to be officially blessed by the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican responded with an emphatic no. Now, I doubt that the Catholic Church will be able to maintain that position. But this points to a truth that we all must acknowledge. As Christians, we will be forced to give an account for what we believe, and when that happens, we better be able to give an answer for why, for why we believe it. Again, in the words of Al Mohler, the kind of decision, the same kind of eventual clarity is going to come from every single church and every single pastor. It's going to come from every single Christian institution. Eventually, you're going to have to say, here's exactly what we believe. My argument has been from the very beginning, you better say that up front, and you better say that early, or you'll be responsible responsible for the confusion that you yourself produce. And by the time you clarify things, you're likely to disappoint the people who thought you might be headed in a different direction. Of course, there are only two directions. Either we're going to stand with the clear authority of Scripture and the Christian teaching of the church when it comes to these issues, or you're going to join the liberal secular progressivist revolution. End quote. There's only two directions. Said another way, we, fa- we are facing a reckoning. We must then take a clear stand on what we believe regarding biblical sexual morality. And we will not, let me repeat, we will not be able to sidestep this issue for long, even if we try. In the words of the hymn writer Elizabeth Charles, which this quote has actually been attributed uh, to by, by many to Martin Luther, or she says this, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity, where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides, besides is mere flight and is a disgrace to him. I didn't say that right. Where the battle rages... The loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. Well, I would argue that that point today is a biblical sexual morality. When Luther appeared before Emperor Charles V at the imperial hearing in Worms, Germany, he was asked if he would repudiate his writings. My prayer is that my response to the questions of our day will match his response almost 500 years ago. He said this, Since your most serene majesty and your lordships require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures and by clear reason, for I do not trust in the pope, or counsels alone well since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves i am bound by the scriptures i have quoted my conscience is captive to the word of god i cannot and i will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience here i stand i cannot do otherwise god help me amen End quote well my prayer is that this sermon And any writing published from it represents our clear stand on the Word of God regarding biblical sexual morality. And I want you to know that I have joined the other pastors in not only preaching today, but also in signing uh, this letter that the Grace Community Church and John MacArthur have put out standing on a biblical sexual morality. So let me pray, and then we'll get started in the actual sermon this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we have the opportunity to stand on the clear written word of God as it pertains to as it pertains to sexual morality. Father, we pray that we would get this right. We pray that we would stand firm and never deviate. Father, not because we Not because we are the authority, because you are. And you are the one who has said, thus saith the Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. A few weeks ago when the call to preach the sermon came out, I immediately thought of a sermon I preached from Ephesians back in 2020. In that sermon, I established a biblical sexual morality. Now, some of you may actually recall, some of you were here, and you may recall that our Facebook account was shut down for due to the recording posted there of that particular sermon. And the text was Ephesians 5, 1 through 3. I thought it would be good for us to return to that text as we take a fresh look at this critical subject. Now, as we start, I want to remind you of the context of Ephesians, of this wonderful text. Paul wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus to encourage the believers and to call attention to their immeasurable blessings found in Christ Jesus. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he reminded them that they had been chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him. In Ephesians 1, 7, he points out that they were redeemed through the blood of the cross. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he after hearing the gospel, they were saved and were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Apostle Paul wanted the church to be thankful for their incalculable blessings in Christ. He wanted them to be encouraged by all that Christ had accomplished for them and among them. He wanted them to recognize the magnificent blessings of being part of the body of Christ. And according to Ephesians 2, 1-3, prior to Christ saving them, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They walked according to the ways of this world. Their master was Satan. They lived in the lust of their flesh and they indulged the desires of the flesh. That was their lives before. Now, we shouldn't move past this too quickly. Ultimately, they lived lives of wanton pleasure. They were pursuing the lust of the flesh. In other words, they were given over to sexual deviancy among other sins. And Paul wanted them to recognize the incredible nature of their salvation in Christ, how they turn from their sin to serve a living and true God. Just listen to how he describes what God has done in saving them. Look at listen to or look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God. Being rich in mercy, so juxtaposed to who they were, now Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What an amazing truth that we see here, that we have been made alive in Christ. Those of you who know Him have been made alive in Christ and have been raised up and seated with Him in the heavenly places. Before you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Now you've been made alive in Him. Now we've looked at this section many times over the past couple of years as we've progressed through Ephesians, but these truths should never grow old to us. They should refresh us and remind us all that God has accomplished in saving us from the dominion of sin. Not only are we saved, but we have been raised up and seated in the heavenlies in Christ. Positionally, we're in Christ in the heavenlies. Now, I want to point out a truth that Paul comes to in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Just listen to his words, starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result. We'll get it all going again. Not as a result of work, so that no man may boast. No one may boast. So we are saved by grace through belief in the finished work of Christ. We are not saved by our good works, leaving no room for boasting. Then he says this in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. He says in, in in 2 Corinthians 5 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold things, behold, new things have come. We are a new creation in Christ. And I would argue that the truths from Ephesians 2 mean that we must abandon the deeds of the flesh and walk in newness of life, according to that new creation. Paul gives this very same truth in Romans 6:4 through 6. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin may be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Considering these truths then, starting in Ephesians 4.1, Paul exhorts the following. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In other words, he encouraged them to live in a manner worthy of all of those immense blessings that have been found in Christ, all of those truths that have been given to us in Christ. He's saying, you need to live in a manner worthy of that calling. And the final three chapters of this letter are structured around those five commands. Uh, The first, again, is the call to walk worthy of the calling of Christ. I believe this is the overarching command of how we should live as Christians. This is a call to humility, gentleness, and love as we work to preserve the unity that we have in the Spirit. The call to a worthy walk is also a call to use the gifts of the Spirit for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, in Paul's second walk command, in Ephesians 4, 17-19, he says we must not walk like the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the, ex- the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. Then he says this, and they, this is the Gentiles, having become callous have given themselves over to to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's how the Gentiles walk, and as Christians, we are not to walk that way. We are to recognize that we again have been made into a new creation, which has been created in righteousness and, and the holiness of truth. And I believe this is crucial for us to understand. You see, Christianity is not just a bunch of rules to follow. I know that's what some people do, right? They make all these rules. It's not just a bunch of rules to to follow. We have been made into a new creation by the Lord. We are now in Christ. We have been given a new king. We are to live then to please Him. And we are to live according to His law, which, by the way, is the law of love. And in this new life, we walk by faith and not by sight. And we have as our ambition to be pleasing to Him and Him alone. Jesus Himself said, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the words of Jerry Bridges, he says, We obey God's law not to be loved, but because we are loved in Christ. Now, you may be asking why I would, be focused, why I would focus on Christians and the church as we approach a sermon establishing biblical sexual morality. I would argue that we must begin with the church. Remember, Paul's call was not to walk as the Gentiles walk. Having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality, we're not to be that way. And I would argue that Paul's reference to impurity in that verse primarily refers to sexual impurity. It's accords with Romans 1, 24-25. Speaking of unbelievers, he says, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their body, bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. He goes on to further define uh, sexual impurity in Romans 1, and 27. He says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You see, that's the life of the unbeliever who spirals out of sin and is out of control. And it is, I believe, the reason we're witnessing a growing debauchery in our culture where we're accepting these deviants, deviant actions, that is. Just as the book of Judges describes, everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And we see it over and over. But as Christians, we're called to a different way of living. According to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 1 through 3, we are called to walk in love. Now just listen to these verses. Just listen to these verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Then he says this. Now, remember remember how people are saying we need to accept homosexuality because of love? Right? That's that's what they're saying. We need to love them and we need to affirm them. But Paul says, tied tied to walking in love, he says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The point is, The point is, as part of the walk of love, as Christians, sexual immorality must not even be named among us. But as I said earlier, if we take that stand, it will put us in direct opposition to the spirit of this age. Now, as you may know, there are people in the church who are muddying the waters regarding what the Bible says about sexual morality. If immorality must not even be named among us, then we must then be able to explain our position from the Bible. And I honestly, and, and you may disagree with me, but I honestly don't think it's enough for us to, to quote Leviticus 18.22 when we're faced with the question of homosexuality. It says there, and I believe it with all my heart, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. But I don't think, I think this culture is well beyond us being able to quote that Scripture and saying, that's good enough. We must know how to answer, give an answer to those who contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. So let me take the next few minutes to lay out a case for a biblical sexual morality then I want to give you some clear affirmations and denials regarding this subject. And as we do this, I want you to recognize that it is unloving, it is absolutely unloving for us to accept sexual deviancy of any kind, of any kind. In Ephesians, Paul calls the believers to act according to their status as a new creation in Christ. At salvation, we have, as Christians, put off the old man and we have put on the new. Therefore, we are called to walk in love according to Ephesians 5.2. And there is nothing more unloving than to live an immoral life that is antithetical to the truth of God's Word. And there's nothing more unloving than not to call it out. Beloved, you may struggle. You may be sitting here struggling with the matter at hand. You may even think it is unloving to speak these things. But I would argue that taking a stand on biblical morality is the most loving thing we can do. Now, let me give you my quick proposition and outline. A biblical sexual morality is, first, confirmed by God's holy character. Now, I should start this by saying that we could go to the New Testament to show that God's Word clearly prohibits sexual behavior outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, we could go there. And I think that would be an open and shut case in many ways. But You would not be surprised to hear that that some in the church have worked to discredit Paul's clear words. Therefore, we must then connect Paul's instruction, both in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 6, among other places, Romans 1 with them. We need to connect those back to then God's holy character. Back in Ephesians 5.3, Paul says that Christians are not to be sexually immoral. This is the Greek word porneia, which, which is where we get our English word, porn. This word has the idea of all unlawful sexual intercourse or fornication. Now, get the word all. Said differently, this refers to that which does not match God's very good design for sex. Now, turn to, to see this, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Now, I would argue that Genesis, as you're turning there, I would argue that Genesis is the basis for our understanding God's original intention for His creation. Now, let me point out some critical truths regarding God's creation. If you're there, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I would argue there's a lot packed into this statement, but for our purposes, it means that God created this world, all of it, and that we then are accountable to Him. And let me just tell you, that's absolutely true, even if you don't agree. You, can't, you, can, sh- you can shake your fist at God and say that you don't want to obey Him, but that doesn't change the fact that you are accountable to Him. <clears throat> In Psalm 24.1, David says, The earth is the Lord, Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. In that Psalm, in Psalm 24.3, David connects the holiness of God with His creation. Just listen to 24.3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in His holy place? See, God created the heavens and the earth, and there's no one that can stand in for Him. Just listen to Genesis 2-3. Then God blessed the seventh day, and He sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His works which He had created and made. Now, I fully believe, firmly believe that God spoke the world into existence in six 24-hour days. I think that demonstrates God's sovereignty, and I would argue that this was what Moses was saying in his account of creation. And some, some would argue that, it, that there are other ways to understand the language of Genesis 1, but I would tell you that in Exodus 20 verse 8, verses eight through 10, it, that Moses says, "Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. for uh, six days you shall labor and do all your work." But in the seventh day is a Sabbath. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. And it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Now, he says this. Well, I cut it out. But he says, For in six days God created the heavens and the earth. In six days. In six days. He's tying it directly to creation. Now, I want you to see something that is clear from the beginning of God's creation. He has founded His world according to His holy character. Now, let me stop and say that as Christians, we must believe God's account of the creation of the world. I, I know that's strong, but I, I, I truly believe that because I think it opens, if we don't believe it, what it does is it opens up the, the door to so much doubt. Some, again, some people would say I'm overstating this, but again, it opens up, to all its all sorts of interpretation of the world we inhabit. Now I would argue that our understanding of God and his character hinges on our grasp of creation. You see God is holy and he spoke the world into existence. He brought forth out of nothing everything out of nothing by the word of his power. Now as such I firmly believe that his creation acts according to his word. Now, let me show you what I mean by that. Look down in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Now, this is the second point. This is the second point. A biblical sexual morality is central to God's good creation. Look down in verses 11 and 12. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them, and it was so. Now, look again at, at verse Verses 20 and 21, said, then God said, Let the waters team with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth and the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moved, and with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Look down at verses 24 and 25. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and the beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. Now, what I want you to see is that God created the universe with order. A order that we can observe, that we see even to this day. Now, we can see this order... In things such as the Fibonacci sequence, which is seen in the growth patterns of flowers and trees, and even in the breeding of rabbits. We see it in the, what's called the golden ratio. If you haven't heard that it, it, of that, it's, it has a great influence in our sense of beauty. The beauty of the human face or the beauty of an architectural design is all in the ratio of, of how it's built. Now these these uh, observable patterns that we see throughout creation, everywhere, if you look, Everywhere are patterns that are undeniable fing- fingerprints of God on His creation. Therefore, therefore, the little phrase, after their kind, is incredibly important to understand. And the plain reading of the text implies that plants and animals were created to reproduce within the boundaries of their kind. Now, we, see, we can clearly, again, see this concept in our world today. Dogs and cats or horses and cows cannot breed and produce offspring. They just can't. You know that. A good, a good rule of thumb is that if two things can produce offspring, then they are of the same created t- kind. As an example, dogs can breed with one another, whether wolves or dingoes or coyotes or domestic dogs. When dogs breed together, you get dogs. That's the dog kind. It it works the same with monkeys and it were and humans. There's no crossover. Monkeys are monkeys, and humans are humans. And plants and trees. In other words, each plant and tree on the earth is divided according to its kind. A peach tree does not bear does not bear pears. An okra plant will not yield watermelons. An olive tree does not produce almonds. That's pretty basic, right? Now I'm not saying that that scientists have not been able to genetically modify things, but I am saying that those modifications cannot break the laws that God has set forth in His creation. There is order. In other words, when it comes to these things, even the brightest scientist is no more than a child pushing sand around in a sandbox. Now, they may learn how to use sand and rocks to make concrete, but at the end of the day, it's still sand and rocks. Now, Look back at Genesis one twenty two. It says, Be, God said, bless them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Now, I would argue that this verse, in this verse we see God's intention for His creation and His intention for re- reproduction. God desired, He desired for the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea to be fruitful and fill the earth and the seas. He has filled the, the earth with vegetation. Now he's filling the seas with fish and the skies with birds. Sky, sky with birds. And if you're saying, what does this have to do with sexual immorality? Just be patient. Let me show you. Look at verse 27. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Now, we've already established that God is holy and He's orderly in His creation. And in verse 27, we see God's perfect design for mankind. Man was created in God's image, and God created them male and female. Beloved, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg may offer many choices for your gender. But my my favorite actually might be the new choice, which means no gender. It's not twisted favorite, but it's not really my favorite. You know what I'm saying. But according to the word of God, there are only two genders, male and female. No more, no less, we are binary. God has designed us this way. It is part of God's very good creation. Now, there may be anomalies. You can say, well, what about the anomalies? Beloved, we must recognize that in a fallen world, things are not as God originally intended. In a fallen world, we should expect anomalies and irregularities. These do not disprove the existence of what is ideal. They do not disprove the perfect, but they should serve to stir up In us, a desire for the perfect, which means the restoration of man that we're going to see at the end of of the church age. We already see it in Christ, but we're going to see the full fruition. That that was Paul's main argument uh, in Romans 8. We we ought to uh, uh, long for this perfect to come. Now look at Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, again we see the command to be fruitful and multiply. This is God's good design for human reproduction. Male and female together bringing forth offspring. So God intended the man and the woman to reproduce and fill the earth and subdue it. He intended for mankind to rule over his creation. Now look down at 131, Genesis 131. This is very important. God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You see God considered all the things that he had made including the reproductive process including sex to be very good. Very good. Now let me make a few preliminary observations. We've already seen God has created the world by the word of His power. He created the world as very good. His perfect world reflects His holiness and character. He created His world with perfect order. Anything that deviates from His perfect design brings chaos, not peace. In God's perfect creation, there are kinds of living creatures. We know that it is not proper for different kinds to come together for the purpose of breeding. Cats cats don't breed with dogs, horses with cows. Men and women do not engage with animals of any kind. This is called bestiality. In God's perfect creation, reproduction is good and is for the purpose of filling the earth. God made sex to be enjoyed, and sex between male and female is the only way we can produce. Uh, relational intimacy, we're going to see in a moment, oneness, we're going to see that in Genesis 2, and reproduction are the main purposes of sexual union. And in God's perfect creation, there are only two genders, male and female. Anything other than this is a deviation from God's perfect design. Now look at Genesis 2. I would argue that this chapter is a deeper dive into God's creation. Therefore, chapter 2... In chapter 2, it describes, Moses describes God's very good design. In Genesis 2 7, we see the Lord God forming the man out of the dust of the ground and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. We see how God created man. He created him from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. And in verses 15 through 18, we see that the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you shall eat from it, you will surely die. Then the then the Lord God said, this is very important, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So initially, the picture is God created the man without the woman, but He knew, God knew that it was not good for the man to be alone. Therefore, He promised to make him a suitable helper. Literally, if you look in the Hebrew, this is, was one who corresponded to him. She was the same but different. Now, here's something that's telling. Here's something that's telling. Look at verse Genesis, uh, verse, uh, at verse 19, Genesis 2.19. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to, see the, to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So God brought all the animals to the man to name them. This showed man's dominion over the animals. It also showed showed Adam himself that there was none like him. There was none corresponding to him. Now, we see in Genesis uh, 2, 21 and 22, we see that God creates the woman. And it says that that in verse 22, The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which He had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, for those of us who love weddings, and by the way, we have a wedding coming up in this church, the picture is that of the father presenting the bride to the groom. It's the the big reveal of, of the bride. This, this, then, is the first marriage between man and woman. You see, marriage, then, is God's idea. Look at verse 25. we We've already, Well, we've already seen it, but look further in verse 25. It's after this revelation, after the revealing, after God brought the woman, the man said, Now, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. And for this reason... A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now notice that the man named the woman. That depicts submission to the man. Now, from this passage, we also see that the marriage was a one flesh relationship. Again, male and female coming together as one flesh. Now, that argument is reinforced by Paul in Ephesians 5 when he uses marriage to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, again, in that verse, I want you to notice that there is no shame in a sexual relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Now let me make a few more observations regarding this. God created the woman for the man because it is not good for the man to be alone. God created the woman to be one corresponding to him. God instituted marriage as a one-flesh relationship between a man and a woman. There is nothing shameful about the sexual relationship of the man and woman within the one-flesh context of marriage. This was all part of God's very good design. Now, this is the big one. Uh, those are all big, but this is, this is the big one for this sermon. Any sexual relationship which deviates from God's original design is sexual immorality. Cornea. That's what we wanted to establish. That's why it's important for you and I to be able to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and connect all that's being said later in the in the Old Testament and the New Testament to show why, that, why it is wrong to do these things. Now, back in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, God told the man that he could eat from any of the trees in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God warned the man that if, in, that he, if he ate it, if in the day that he ate it, he would surely die. Now in chapter three, the man and the woman, the man and the woman disobeyed God by falling for the deception of the serpent. In Genesis 3:16, it is profound that God cursed both the bringing forth of offspring, childbirth. He also made the relationship between the man and the woman difficult. Now, after the fall, so after Genesis chapter 3, we see sexual deviancy abound, starting with the sons and daughters of Cain. In Genesis 4.19, we see that Lamech has taken multiple wives, which is in direct violation of God's perfect design for marriage. People say, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they have multiple wives. Doesn't that mean that we can... No. From Genesis chapter 2... Till now, it's been one man, one woman, male and female. And so Lamech Lamech disobeyed by taking two wives. In Genesis 6-2, it says that the sons uh, sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Now, it's hard to be sure exactly what's happening here, but and some people believe that this may have been fallen angels procre- procreating with women. In any case, it is a corruption. It is, a, it is deviating from God's plan for His creation. And it was bad enough that God judged the world by the flood of the waters. In Genesis 19, the men of Sodom tried to lie with two angels who came to, the, to Lot's house. We could go on and on, right down to the New Testament, even to our own times, Sexual immorality, that that which, which is against God's plan for sex and sexual relationship, is a part of man's sinful flesh. You see, we are in rebellion against God's design for sex. You see that? Do you see that? Albert Moeller sums it up nicely. Beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, God makes emphatically clear that, yes, He has made us in His image, and yes, He has made us relational creatures, but yes, He made us to relate to one another sexually in one and in only one way. A man and a woman coming together in the covenant union of marriage, monogamous for a lifetime. That is God's plan from the beginning, And we have have it not only from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we have it from the Gospel of Matthew, from the words of Jesus himself in the first Gospel of the New Testament. It is God's plan, said Jesus, from the beginning that a man and a woman should be married, period, end quote. I hope you see that. I hope you believe that. I hope you stand on that truth. So let's quickly look at the final piece of this puzzle. Earlier I told you that we have to start with at the beginning to understand God's design for sex. Now that we've seen that a biblical sexual morality is confirmed by God's holy character, it's central to God's very good creation, and I forgot to mark this out, but it's corrupted by man's act of rebellion, we need to end this story by showing that a biblical Sexual morality is corroborated by the New Testament authors. Now, we've already looked at what Paul has to say about sexual immorality. Examples can be found in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 through 8, among others. He, He has said much about... Much about sexual immorality, and each of these examples are truly an open and shut case. But I would argue, I would say that there is one passage that better demonstrates my point that God has designed sex. But I, w- between designed sex between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, turn to Matthew 19. I mentioned this briefly in the quote by Al Mohler. Starting in verse Matthew 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So what we have here is these folks wanted to test Jesus, trying to catch him in a contradiction. Now listen to how Jesus answers this question. He answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female?" Now, since you have been so well taught at this point, Joe, you should immediately recognize those words. He is quoting Genesis 2. He's quoting Genesis 2. And he's he's appealing to Genesis 2 when it comes to marriage. Now, look at verses 5 and 6. And said... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, there are a few truths from which Jesus affirms in this statement. I would argue that he affirms Genesis 1 and 2 as an accurate account of creation, He's, he's speaking of it. He's referring to it. He's saying, this is what happened. In Mark 10.6, he also refers to Genesis chapter 1, by the way. So it's not just Genesis chapter 2. In Mark 10.6, he says, from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. Again, he's appealing to Genesis chapter 1. For those who uh, struggle with whether or not that's a, a true account, the truth of the matter is, Genesis chapter 1, our Lord has referenced it, and I don't see why he would reference it if it isn't true. It also affirms that God has not only instituted marriage, he is the one who brings man and woman together in a one flesh relationship. Beloved, the Bible does not allow for any other type of sexual relationship other than between a man and a woman. That is, You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with the words of our Lord. It's clear. In the, in the words of Tim Challies, God hates sexual sin. He hates any defilement of the gift of sexuality. And He hates any dishonoring of marriage the only right context for sexuality, end quote. Now, I wanted to take some time to personally appeal to you in a couple of different ways. In Ephesians 5.3, as we started, Paul says that sexual immorality must not even be named among you. This means that we must understand what the Bible says about sex. We must recognize that Sexual relationships between a man and a woman in the context of marriage is good when enjoyed according to God's design. But this also means that we must not practice anything that deviates from God's design. Now, I'm going to get in your cornflakes a little bit. This includes partaking of pornography which celebrates sexual deviance and perverts the one flesh union. This also includes anything, doing anything that defiles the sanctity of the marriage bed. Hebrews 13:4 or 13 Hebrews 13:4 13, says marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So You can get on your favorite sin of homosexuality, but the truth of the matter is, is it doesn't stop with homosexuality. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. This includes then entertaining sinful thoughts at the thought level, or acts at the thought level. Jesus himself said, you have heard it said that, that you shall not commit adultery. This is Matthew 5, 27, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The point is is that even at the thought level, if we entertain these thoughts, if we entertain these uh, errant thoughts, we are sinning against God. And yes, that includes entertaining same-sex attraction as neutral. It's not neutral. It's not neutral, and it needs to be killed. It's sin. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Lust is a strong desire for something. So when I strongly desire something, so I'm I'm referencing same-sex attraction, when I have a strong desire for that, that, that lust then is conceived and it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So when I entertain same-sex attraction, I'm bound to continue? Call me wrong. Let me give you a, a second thing that I want to point out to you. If you're caught in a pattern of sexual sin, so if you're here today and you're caught in a pattern of sexual sin, I beg you to, to seek out a mature believer in Christ. We need to lovingly battle this, these sins together. Heath Lambert says, Employing radical measures is the path to life, while indulging sin is the path to hell. God does not forbid sexual immorality because He wants you to be miserable. He forbids it because sexual immorality leads to brokenness, sadness, emptiness, death, and hell, end quote. The point is, is that you may think that you're finding life in that pornographic film, but you're not. You're finding death, and ultimately it will lead you to hell. You may think you're finding life in that homosexual relationship, you're not. You may think it's you're finding life and cheating on your wife or your husband, but you're not. The grass is not greener on the other side, I promise you. Not of, out of experience. <laughs> Thought I'd say that. <laughs> let, me give you a, let me give you a solemn word of warning to those who do not desire to battle the flesh. So if you're here today and you don't desire to battle the flesh, let me give you a solemn word of warning. Well, I'm going to let Paul do that. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 through 8. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Again, that's so clear, right? The authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I don't think there's any clear connection between what the Lord Jesus has said and what Paul is saying here about sexual immorality. He goes on to say that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity but in sanctification, sanctification, being set apart, being made holy. He's not called us to the to the purpose of sexual impurity, but to be sanctified. And he warns this, he says this, So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's serious, folks. Back in 1 Corinthians 6, I want to tie this back to the gospel. I read this earlier. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says this. Such were some of you. but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Church, if you are caught in the snare of sexual sin, the answer is the gospel. The gospel where we find freedom. In Christ, we have been freed from the tyranny of sin. But if you don't know Him, if you have not trusted in His finished work on the cross, then according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no hope in this world. I beg you. I beg you to turn to Him in saving faith. He beckons you to come where you will find rest, where you will find true freedom. You're here today and you you have believed. You have believed. Yet you are still ensnared by sexual sin. You are still... You keep going back to it. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember what Christ has done. That He has nailed our sin to the cross. And that we have been saved by grace. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. These words are instructive. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. When you're struggling, when you're trying to say no, just remember what Christ has done. And when you fail, you fail. And sadly we do. He has redeemed us from every lawless deed. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep fighting the good fight. If the Holy Spirit has laid anything on your heart in the preaching of this sermon, just ask that you would contact one of the leaders, they or I, and speak or speak to a mature Christian to answer your questions. And you can get a hold of me. If you need me, just uh, pull me aside. I'd love to answer any questions. Also, as we close this sermon, Uh, In the handout, if you have that, we'll put it on the website as well. Uh, We've posted biblical truths concerning uh, sexual immorality that we affirm. There's two different lists there, uh, the affirmations and denials regarding sexual sins. Um, I would commend you to read those. We plan to, as a church, to um, put out our own statement. That'll be part of our doctrinal perspectives, if you will, distinctives. We want to make sure that we clearly state what we believe about sexual sin, uh, what we what we teach about sexual sin, and also um, for the young men who would like to I'm would like to start a a study through a book called Passions of the Heart. We want to take seriously sexual sin within the body of Christ. We we understand that it's a struggle and can be a struggle, especially as we especially for the young, and but even for the older. We want to take it seriously. We want to come uh, uh, come together and we want to talk about these things. And we want to hold each other up and hold each other accountable and encourage, and encourage one another. So if you'd like to be a part of that, let me know. And we'll, we have not set a, t- a date or a time. It just We just uh, have just been discussing it. So well, i will pray and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, I know it's uh, a little over time. I pray that uh, Lord, uh, pray that you would be honored, was honored by the preaching of your word. We pray that you would bless it, as you bless this church, that we would that we would abstain from sexual deviance of, deviance of any kind. That we would stand on biblical truth in Christ's name. Amen.